You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. This morning's message is back into the Gospel of Luke, where we've been. Uh, We're going to read two conversations today that are not the same. It's kind of like two passages, but they are connected in some interesting ways. But before we do that, I want to remember what Pastor Greg was leading us through last week uh, in Luke 18, verses 18 to 30. There was a rich young man who said he wanted to follow Jesus, and Jesus uh, said, sounds good, um, but you have some idols in your life, right? There's things that you can't let go of, and for him it was his money. You could say that his money owned him, not the other way around, and that was too much to ask for him, so he was sad and, and walked away. And then you have the disciples who I imagine may have been getting nervous after this conversation. I'm not sure. But anyways, Peter turns to Jesus and says, well, what about us? (laughs) Basically, like, what about us? Can we come into your kingdom? Like, we've left some things behind to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus says, of course, uh, whatever you've left in this lifetime, you'll receive above and beyond as an eternal reward for following me. And so this reminded me of, of Luke 1:53, the very beginning, where Mary, the mother of Jesus, praises God and says that he has satisfied the hungry with good things, and he sent the rich away empty. And indeed, this is what Jesus was doing last week with the rich young ruler. And uh, this is the context that we're dropping into this morning, because uh, we need a little bit of a running start, I think, as we get into uh, verses 31 to 43. If you have your Bibles, you can uh, turn with me there. I'm reading from the ESV version this morning. And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that was written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As they drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing the crowd going by, he inquired what this meant, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning, and we are thankful for it. So as I said, there's two conversations. The first one is with Jesus and his disciples. And here Jesus gives the most clear description of what he is going to do as they travel south towards Jerusalem. They're almost there in Jericho. It's close. And 
The way that Luke places Jesus' words in this chapter read almost like a response to the story we heard last week, right? Where the disciples are worried about leaving things behind and asking Jesus about it. And here you can see Jesus is not just teaching his disciples about the idea of sacrificial living. He's telling them that he's going to embody it when they reach Jerusalem. He's not just saying, you know, we should think about giving things up and living sacrificially. Uh, I'll show you soon. Now, it's interesting to picture Jesus because he spells it out for them. He's looking them in the eye, and it's crystal clear. There's no more guessing about what Jesus needs to do. He's going to be delivered over for shame, tortured, killed, and in three days he'll rise again. And as we think about this, I want to quickly mention, make sure we understand that the whole idea of Easter, of the cross, his death and resurrection, was most definitely God's plan. In verse 31, Jesus says that he is the Son of Man. This is a messianic title from the Old Testament. And that he will go to the cross, not as some kind of uh, misunderstanding, but as a fulfillment of the words spoken by God's messengers in the past, the prophets. So Jesus' death that is about to happen is not a horrible accident or misunderstanding, but it's the very task that he was destined for since the fall of mankind. It goes all the way back. And so this is clear to us, because uh, we have that in mind, but to his disciples, they can't grasp it, and we may wonder, well, what's, what's so hard for them to get about what Jesus says? Why was this hidden from them? And there are a few reasons I can think of. First of all, I'm a person who sometimes struggles with verbal or written instruction. Anyone else? If something is just written or spoken to you, you get confused. Um, I, I think of my dad who's taught me so many important things in my life and still is. I'm thankful for that. But you know, as a kid, if I maybe had my dad on the phone and he was telling me something like, well, did you prime the engine? Or like, where is the choke? You got to adjust it and things like this. Oh man, I, I just would basically be done for at that point. Uh, because for some reason, and it's nothing wrong with what he said. It was clear, but it's going to go over my head um, almost every time. However, other things, if I had my dad with me and he was able to either do the thing and show me or invite me to do it with him and we could do something together. I mean, I still remember that stuff to this day, even the little things right, that I learned because I got to learn by seeing someone else do it who knew how and, or by getting in there myself and also... Um, being taught while I learned. So um, this, is, this is common, and I, I think that this is part of why the disciples do lack understanding with what Jesus explains to them so clearly, because they haven't witnessed it with their own eyes just yet, right? They haven't seen it yet. And until they would, what Jesus is telling them about suffering and the cross was, was abstract, and they can't truly understand the meaning of it. Until the disciples are given the chance to see Jesus suffering on the cross and then later experience their own suffering for his sake, the cross was a confusing idea. It did not have tangible meaning attached to it. So I don't think it's that they're intellectually stunted, that they just don't know what the words mean. Like, you know, it made sense in that way. But the, the big picture, the eternal meaning of the cross was not yet revealed 
to them. And Paul talks about this in Colossians 1.26. He calls this the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And so this was not yet revealed, right? God's plan was unfolding before them through Jesus' death and resurrection, but that hadn't quite happened yet. They couldn't grasp, no one could grasp what was to be accomplished at Easter. And so this intimate conversation where Jesus pulls them aside, tells them what's about to happen, kind of provides a bit of a, a, an interesting picture of spiritual blindness at that time for the disciples, isn't it? They're blind. They can't see the truth of what Jesus is about to say. And then there's a contrast of the physical blindness of the beggar. He's actually blind, right? And he cries out to Jesus and praise God. He receives his sight. We'll talk about the beggar for a minute. Um, in Mark's gospel, this blind beggar is named Bartimaeus, and I will call him Bart for short, if that's okay with everyone. Um, so without the ability to see, Bart's life basically consists of begging other people for help to get by, right? He, he depends on the mercy of friends and strangers who are passing by to sustain him, maybe give him money or offer him food or whatever that would be. Uh, we could probably assume that Bart is a Jewish man, and because of this, he was aware of the Old Testament. In fact, he cries out and calls Jesus the son of David. Right? That's a, uh, a reference to uh, the promise of the Savior from the prophets, which Jesus just spoke about. There's no doubt in my mind that Bart would be aware of and refer back to passages like Isaiah 42, which gives this promise to God's children. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness, and I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisons, those who sit in darkness. This is the type of thing that the son of David, the Savior, was supposed to come and do. And as a blind man, I think that Bart would hear and interpret this prophecy quite literally. It would have a special meaning to him that he longed for the Savior to come, the one who would be able to open the eyes of the blind to shine a light and make them see again. So he's crying for mercy. Again, this is probably a normal thing for him to do. Alms for the poor. He's had... Uh, all sorts of responses, no doubt, in his lifetime of begging, good ones and bad ones from different types of people. But on this one day, by God's divine and very personal grace, the Messiah was walking by, and so he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And I like how it says those in front of him were like, shut up, Bart, you're embarrassing us. He cries out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Who we cry out to makes all the difference, doesn't it? When we are in a dark place, when we are desperate and need help, who we cry out to makes all the difference because Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the son of David, the son of God, who will have mercy and compassion on the suffering and lowly. So who are you crying out to? Who in your despair or what do you turn to cry out to and ask for mercy and help? So 
Psalm 34, 4-6 says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord helped him and saved him from all his troubles. This is King David who wrote this psalm, and he had hope. This is the hope of King David. It's the same hope that the blind beggar also has, and it is the hope that we today can have as we turn to Jesus in our own despair, in our own darkness, and we place those needs upon him. Let us cry out to Jesus in our distress, for the Lord will have mercy on us. I love Jesus' response in uh, verse 41. Jesus gives him a blank check. (laughs) He says, what do you want me to do for you? A life-changing question, especially when it comes from the Son of God. What do you want me to do for you? What would you ask if, if Jesus was in the flesh before you and asking that? And as we read, um, Bart's request is simple and profound. He isn't being greedy. He doesn't ask for a million more wishes, which always seems like the smart thing to say. No, it's simple. He just tells Jesus, I want to see. He needed to see. And so Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Very simply, I challenge us this morning to put our faith in the same Jesus who healed the blind man to save us from our affliction as we hope in him now. As we trust in Jesus, we will experience transformation because of him. And like the blind man, we will follow him giving praise to God and and drawing more attention of others to give glory to God in the process. And so having seen the conversation with the disciples and a discussion with the blind man, it's easy to see the contrast between the disciples who are spiritually blind, so to speak, and the man who's actually blind, but his faith gave him the sight to see and follow Jesus. The disciples heard information from Jesus, and they were confused by it. But the blind man came to Jesus with simple faith and experienced transformation that changed his life forever. The blind man was the one whose faith healed him and made him see while the disciples are still left in the dark. And I could end here and say something that I've heard other pastors preach, which is that we don't need information, we need transformation. Have you heard this before? I have. It sounds all right because it's sort of true. We do need to be transformed, absolutely. But I want to tell you this morning that with God, we are not left to choose between either information or transformation. But we actually receive both by the power of his spirit. Jesus taught in John chapter 4 that the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
Christians aren't forced to either receive God's truth intellectually or experience him supernaturally. This is a false dichotomy. It's a false dilemma, right? You're not being told one or the other. And if you are only buying into one, I believe you're in a dangerous place of being, you know, pushed off course by Satan. We can take the disciples as an example. Imagine if their goal of following Jesus, which I'm sure this was the goal of some, to only see the blessing and the miracle, the transformation, so to speak. If this was the disciples' mindset, as soon as Jesus starts talking about flogging and death and other horrible things, they're going to be like, forget this, I'm going home, and I'm going to write a bad review on Facebook about the whole thing. (laughs) Right? That is what they probably would have done. I believe that many of us are too easily perturbed by our own misunderstandings. This means that we blame God for our limited perspective on things. We blame God for our limited perspective. We hear something preached, we read something in the Word, and it's hard to receive or confusing, and it doesn't make sense, and we get ready to pack up and go home. So rather than emphasizing you know, the so-called blindness of the disciples this morning, I want to emphasize the faith that they have for continuing to follow Jesus to Jerusalem, even at this point when he's telling them um, basically horrendous things that are going to happen soon. And they will abandon him in his darkest moment for a time, uh, but that's yet to come. If you are experiencing issues of, of faith and trust in Jesus, let me urge you to plea with you to be like the disciples here who actually continued following even when the information left them in a state of confusion. It is my prayer that the church would be more like this in the days that we are facing instead of letting our confusion or despair derail our our progress as Christians, okay? So let us persist when the information doesn't make sense or confuses us. Let us trust in God's ways which are truly higher and better than ours. On the other hand, we can learn from the beggar too. He was definitely not the most, um, you know, closest to Jesus. He'd never met the guy until he heard that the crowd was coming. But he put his hope in the Messiah. He put his faith in Jesus because he needed a miracle for his life to get back on track, right? He had real needs. And so he was going to embarrass everybody with his shouting. He didn't care. He needed to see again. He put his faith in Jesus, even for the first time. He persisted in shouting. And as a result, his life was absolutely transformed. In the physical, he could see again. Praise God. But also, he was saved because he had faith in Jesus, wasn't he? Even better. He went away uh, with, with sight for his body, but also eternally praising God, singing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I think he wrote that hymn. I'm not sure. (laughs) It sounds like he did. 
But the point I want us to take in the end is that both the confused disciples and the rejoicing beggar follow Jesus. Discipleship to Jesus is a combination of information and transformation through his spirit alive in us today. So when we are following Jesus with everything we have, we must come to accept that God can inform us and transform us. In fact, he promises both, but it's according to his will and his perfect timing, not our own agenda. John 1.14 says that the word information became flesh, that's transformation, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word is information. It's transformed into flesh in Jesus, and he is God with us. He is the glory of the Father in human form, displaying the truth that God loves the world and will lay himself down to save us. So let us understand again that whether we feel more confused like the disciples or in despair like the beggar or perhaps rejoicing like the beggar who's been healed, both of these parties follow Jesus with where he's going. If you're confused, don't stop following Jesus. If you are desperate, don't stop crying out for mercy. And if you are rejoicing, don't stop following Jesus as you praise. Keep going, worshiping him, because Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He's absolutely the life. And it's by him that we will be saved. And we will face difficulty. But let us not be scared off by this or deterred as we follow Jesus towards the prize of eternal life. In 1 Peter uh, 2, verse 21, and then 24 to 25, it says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow him in his steps. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So maybe you feel more like the beggar who's sitting and waiting for a savior to come by. Um, don't wait any longer, okay? Jesus has come, and he offers his mercy, his attention, and his compassion and mercy to any of us who turn towards him and cry out his name with trust. He is faithful. He's full of grace to bring even the most broken situation to wholeness by his power. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 to 18 says that for when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Jesus lifts the veil off our eyes. He makes us see 
and see him. And as we behold him, it says we're transformed. And this is a miracle for which we all rejoice today. Praise God for his transformation, his work in our hearts and lives. Uh, every Sunday, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'm thankful for this opportunity each week because it, it is an invitation to physically respond to Jesus, right? With our bodies to eat and drink in remembrance of him, of his death on the cross. It's a way for us to practically identify with the suffering that he was telling his disciples about in today's passage. And we understand that when we receive communion, we're not participating in some uh, empty tradition, but we're saying yes and thank you to God's grace to us in this moment. We receive communion together to recognize that Jesus' death brings us to life. If anybody has a spare communion cup, I seem to be without one. Could I, could I get a, one brought up here real quick? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, Eugene Peterson, a pastor and author, says about communion, or as he refers to it, uh, the Eucharist. Without the Eucharist, it's very easy to drift into a spirituality that is dominated by ideas about Jesus instead of receiving life from Jesus. And the Eucharist says a plain no to all of that. The Eucharist puts Jesus in his place, dying on the cross and giving us that sacrificed life, and it puts us in our place opening our hands to receive the remission of our sins, which is our salvation. So let us open our hands this morning to the living Jesus, the bread of life, the word made flesh, our salvation, our healing, our life to the full, both today and eternally. We proclaim that together now and say, thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning with all kinds of situations, with all kinds of needs, and together we fall at your feet and ask you for mercy. And even as those words are on our lips, Lord, we praise you for the way that you suffered and set us free from sin and death into true and everlasting life on the cross. God, I pray that each of us would seek and set ourselves on following you with a faith that cannot be discouraged by, by confusion or suffering. Let us see that you not only suffered on the cross, God, but you rose again three days later. And this is the good news that we celebrate today. So as we hear the word, I thank you that your spirit is here to make it alive within us to transform us from within. I thank you that in receiving communion today, we are blessed beyond measure to know and be known by you because of the blood of Jesus covering our sin and bringing us before you with no condemnation. God, your grace is our hope. So we cry out to you and we celebrate the power of your spirit in this place 
through the name of Jesus the Son, and all for the glory of you, God our Father. Amen.